0: Today I have a really talented political scientist from uh, UCSD who uh, has recently put out a paper with his co-authors that you know is right up my alley. Uh, it caught my attention as soon as it came out because the title was you know Not by Turnout Alone Measuring the source of Electoral Change 2012 to 2016. Um, and as soon as I saw that, I thought, wow, that's interesting because usually for me things are framed, You know to de-emphasize the importance of turnout so I went right into it and and I just can't wait to tell you guys about this article and have Seth explain what he and his co-authors did with the research design which is really brilliant and also what they found in it which is just I think so so relevant to uh, the stuff that I talk about in terms of realignment, and coalitions, and the you know the you know the double thing that's happening in our elections, which of course is is vote choice swings amongst a small segment of the electorate, and also these coalitional changes that we're getting from participation and the changing of the electorate in terms of its demographics and realignment. So, but before we get into that, um, you know, as I said, Seth is an associate professor at UCSD. He got his PhD from UCLA, right?
1: Correct. That's
0: correct, and yeah, um, he has a forthcoming book. Uh, when does this publish?
1: I'm still still uh, working with two different book publishers, so probably not okay. till 2022
0: okay and it's titled frustrated majorities right and i think a lot of people would probably uh, resonate with that How <laughs> issue intensity enables smaller groups of voters to get what they want right so that's right to, you know you might have to give us a preview but we're going to start off i think by, by wrapping back around to the paper and, and talking a little bit about that um which again was with two great uh, really really distinguished co-authors as well and that's dan hopkins and uh, Gregory Huber, so uh, but you know Seth's representing the whole team today, <laughs> so we yeah. can have a deeper conversation. All right, so Seth, this paper is looking not again. This is the 2012 versus the 2016 election, so you don't get into 2020. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But in terms of this 2012 to 2016 paper, can you give the audience kind of like you know the abstract version of what you guys are looking for? how you
1: do it and what you find. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm excited to talk about the research. Um, We were curious uh, about this question of turnout versus persuasion, which um, circles around both in the practical politics world and also the academic world of political science. Um, And it's a really challenging problem um, because well, really, because of the secret ballot. So because people go behind the voting booth and cast their votes in secret, we never get to observe how any individual votes. Um, and so this means even though we can see how individuals turn out from election to election using voter files, um, we can't see how, how they voted. Um, and so, you know, there, there's people who look to surveys to answer these questions, but surveys have a hard time really representing the entire electorate. It turns out people who are less likely to turn out to vote are also less likely to take surveys, and so getting full coverage is a real challenge. So our idea was to use the best possible administrative data we could, um, along with some kind of theoretical assumptions about how things might work, to understand whether candidates who win elections uh, do so by mobilizing new voters who support them or um, by Uh, converting voters who supported the other side in the last election. And really, I shouldn't use the phrase or. What we were particularly interested in was the relative magnitude, because almost certainly in any election, there's some net benefit to change in who turns out, and there's some net benefit to um, people who swing or switch between the two parties. So as I mentioned, we 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 felt that surveys couldn't quite get us to where we wanted to go. Um, so we use two sources of data uh, put out by state election officials. So first, the state voter files, which, which I'm sure listeners of this, of this podcast know about, record the full list of eligible voters or registered voters in each election um, and whether or not they turned out to vote. And in many states, um, uh, those voters also register with a party if, if they choose to do so we merged to those voter files um, precinct-level election returns, which is the lowest level of aggregation at which you can record uh, vote totals. So um, the merging is is, is non-trivial, particularly because we wanted to merge not only the voter file to the precinct returns, but we wanted to do this for two consecutive elections. Um, But what we get from the data set after a a lot of complicated um, data management is a data set that says in each precinct, in the six states that we looked at, um, how many votes did Barack Obama and Mitt Romney get in 2012 in the precinct? How many votes did Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump get in 2016 in a precinct? And then how many voters of what type of party registration turned out in each election? And how many of those voters turned out only in 2012, only in 2016, or in both 2012 and 2016? And with this set of information, we can then relate changes in the Obama-Romney vote margin to uh, the Clinton-Trump vote margin, to changes in the composition of registered voters who turned out in the precinct in the two elections. And the idea is to say, okay, in places where many more uh, registered Republicans turn out in 2016 than 2012, how much better does Trump do than Romney? Um, in places where it's more or less the same set of voters turning out in both elections, in those places we know for sure it, it's it's not, um, changes in who's turning out to vote, how does the vote margin change? Um, we did this in six states, Florida, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. So we tried to cover, you know, battleground-ish states, um, Rust Belt states, New South states, Um, The interesting thing is we didn't find we didn't find a totally consistent pattern across states. Um, So, for for example, um, the Democrats improved their turnout in most states. Um, Sorry, Democratic registered voters, I should be clear, registered voters with the Democrats increased their turnout in most states. um, But in a couple states, they actually declined as a share of the electorate, Michigan and Ohio. Um, These, of course, are the states where where Trump improved the most in in this set of of contests. Um, That being said, registered Republicans also improved their turnout in in most states. Um, Georgia was the one state where um, Clinton does relatively better than Obama. Um, And in that place, um, we see registered Democrats out increasing turnout uh, among registered Republicans. So, our first result is that um, there's not like a consistent slam dunk pattern across states, but rather there does seem to be different um, impacts of things across states.
0: Yeah, that is actually to me, I mean, there's two things, there's three, three things that this this study just uh, is just so exciting. I a mean, number one, it quantitatively and convincingly empirically demonstrates some evidence of turnout impact right now. That doesn't sound like such a big deal sitting here in 2021 that, you know, people have started to look at the composition of the electorate more to determine vote outcome. And we just saw a ton of analyses come out of the Georgia runoff that is that frame, right? But like when I first hit the, you know, stage in 2018, I didn't know I was, I was entering a hornet's nest, <laughs> that there was this, you know, deeply divisive debate as to whether it was turnout or persuasion conversion is, is how you guys use it. I mean to me it's always gonna be both things right and like you know and and coming from like you know watching mainstream media reading 538 things like that the bias was always to me on conversion right because that's how before polarization really got going we had um you know before party sorting when we had lots of liberal republicans and conservative democrats you did have a more robust persuasive environment anyway um and I just felt like the analysis world had forgotten to consider that like election outcomes also have another component and that's turnout. Right. So like to, to have an article like so, you know, really um, convincingly cause it's not just on survey stuff shows and finds us was amazing. But to me too, what was really cool was that not only do you find what you were talking about, this difference in the States and that difference the day that your article um, came out the way you and I connected as I tweeted I was like oh my gosh realigning states to to the Republicans more conversion or uh, yeah more conversion effect and, and states that are de-aligning for the Republicans realigning to the Democrats have this like more turnout model stuff in them are showing this you know um turnout effect right but also you find there's a difference between the parties right so can you talk a little bit about that as well
1: Yeah, of course. So um, the it's it seemed to us just from the data that the um, Democrats were were actually this is this is I think contrary to my conventional wisdom take on 2016. The Democrats did a good job turning out their registered voters there. We did not see a ton of evidence of of, a huge depression. Well, let me rephrase we don't know that they all voted for Hillary Clinton. Yeah, that's the problem. You know, (laughs)
0: we
1: we know that that third-party candidates received a lot of votes in 2016. So we do see, um, though, that Democrats did a good job increasing turnout among their registered voters in every state we looked at in in 2016. Um, And it wasn't always the case, and Republicans did too, but not, like, to any dramatically higher degree. So while turnout is certainly... The part of the story, it is not the case that Republicans totally blew the Democrats out of the water in 2016. Um, what seems to have happened, though, is that Republicans, I, I think your, your your realigning story is, is reasonable, which is Republicans are, are starting to convert some of these previously registered Democrats, particularly in Michigan and Ohio and maybe to a lesser degree, Pennsylvania, um, whereas in Georgia... Um, these, um, a lot of voters who were registered as Republicans, um, seem to maybe have been starting to take their steps towards the Democrats in 2016. Um, so it's hard to summarize across the states. We were hoping we were going to find very consistent patterns across states so we could come to solid conclusions. Um, but it it does seem like there really were differences across the states in the way these patterns manifested themselves.
0: Yeah, and you know, the discipline kind of herds people to like these really like strident, I I would argue, like really strident conclusions, right? Like gerrymandering doesn't cause polarization, right? Well, that's true, and the papers demonstrate that convincingly, but it's definitely a mechanism, right? So it's like, you know, we just have this like thing in political scientists that in science, political science that forces us like into that this or that world, right? So, like, to me, I'm kind of delighted, right, that your their data and the empirics just wouldn't let you do it, and that you instead had to kind of you know report the nuance because it is, you know, so it's not an accident too that the states that we see this turnout thing are the college higher are are, are higher in college ed, right, because. You know in my own work and uh, which was academic and research based and now it's you know dark arts based <laughs> with the launch of the super PAC coming um you know it is you know college education because you have this deal lining of of people who are non-college educated from the from historic voting democrats right union-based kind of you know, I, Rust Belt allegiance, and it's it runs through the whole Midwest, but it really runs everywhere nationally. Um, you know, so you, it makes sense to me that because the college education rates are lower, and that is de-aligning the states away from the Democrats, that we would see what you found. And so let me ask you this, like, you know, I, really wish this data could be updated to 2020. So are you got? because, because, you know, 2016 is kind of like the infant cycle, right? And as you noted, Democrats did decent on turnout. It's just that that third party defection, especially where it ends up getting located, especially in the Midwest kills them. Right. Um, so have you guys thought about updating for 2020?
1: Uh, we have, yes, we're, we're talking about it. Um, we haven't quite uh, pulled the trigger on, on moving forward. Um, but yes, we're interested in 2016 to 2020, and then also interested in Georgia, November 2020 to January 2021.
0: Yeah, uh, again, like... A great
1: story, too. Right. Huh? I mean, the, the yeah. margin, the, the change in vote margin in, from the from the general to the runoff is so small, it's going to be really hard to, to detect a lot. But, but um, uh, you know, as long as we're co- collecting 2020, we might as well do both of those. So, um, yeah, we, we are working towards that.
0: But it would be so interesting, right? I mean, because, like, the, the my assumption is, you know, you get this perfect storm of amazing turnout of the yep. Democrats in the runoff and, like, this depressive effect, like, of Trump losing and then there's the election, you know, election, the big lie is percolating and he's telling everybody, there's no point in voting, it's all rigged, right? So, like, you get that North Georgia mountains, and I did my PhD at University of Georgia, for everybody who's not heard other podcast, that's, So I know this state, and I know this area really well, and I know that that is a Republican stronghold. And so, like, with turnout going down there and up in Metro Atlanta, you could get a Warnock-Ossoff win. So uh, my guess is that your particular research methodology is, like, born for that analysis, right? Right. (laughs) Because, you know, so, like... uh, I really hope that you guys do do it and, um, you know, and it will be interesting to see if the patterns you find persist. My assumption is that they will, but probably be stronger, right? But I really would love to find out, like, what happens in the Midwest, because my argument in my model and my theory was, well, Biden's going to win or the Democrat will win the Midwest, these three states in the Midwest, because it didn't they didn't get peak turnout among especially voters of color in 2016 and they didn't they lost this like per, they lost this defection problem and those people because of negative partisanship no matter if it, if it is biden and somebody that you know the the woke left doesn't really love they're going to show up because now trump's not a hypothetical he's he's a real threat right so it'll be really fascinating to see what you guys come up with and yeah to see if
1: that gets worn out right yeah i mean one one interesting one really interesting thing that that does suggest um things are different of course is that florida actually goes in in the opposite direction and in in 2020 in in our um, 2012 to 2016 analysis florida looks like just a, a straight line turnout story just very little persuasion conversion going on um and so um I think it's interesting. You know, I think the conventional wisdom is that there actually was a bunch of conversion among, among Cuban and other um, Latin American immigrants from socialist areas. But um, again, our evidence from 2012 to 2016 is like Florida is straight up turnout. Um, And so it it may very well be a differential turnout story as much as anything in in Florida in 2020. So uh, i you know, I, I hope that maybe we can do some Florida, too.
0: Yeah, I'm hoping, like, I'm hoping, like, maybe this combo will be like, oh, I got to go, and now I got to know. <laughs> <laughs> and it will infect your co-authors, you know. <laughs>
1: right, <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> That's the kind of, I mean, it's just amazing. So, all right, so, you know, speaking of turnout, right, you've got some research, too, that that does some work in that area, right? Uh, it, One of the, the things that stood out to me on your CV when I was looking it up for this call was a study that you've done really recently on how, on how do you move low propensity voters, right? So, can you talk a little bit about that paper before we get into a, a conversation about your current book project?
1: Yeah, of course. So, um, I've been working with um, some colleagues at other uh, University of California campuses in the last couple of years um, trying to um, understand how California's recent election reforms. Um, are impacting the electorate and if they might be used to increase turnout more generally. So so for, for those who don't know, uh, California has moved to automatic uh, voter registration at the DMV, uh, much more flexible um, same-day voter registration, um, you know, more early voting, um, this vote center model of, of election. So a whole uh, 17-year-old pre-registration, a whole host of reforms to try To make it easier or to at least lower the barriers to particularly registration, uh, but also turning out to vote. And so in 2020, um, we wanted to see if we could piggyback on some of those reforms to help uh, mobilize voters who, who wouldn't otherwise uh, turn out to vote. Um, and we actually ran this field experiment in, in some special elections in, in mid 2020, um, where the letter, the treatment letters, were basically saying, hey, here's how the new registration system works. Here's how the new vote centers work. Um, California has this track my ballot thing where if you vote by mail, you can um, use the number from your mail-in ballot and, and, and go look it up on the website. You know, Has it been received? Has it been processed? And so forth. Um, and so we sent letters targeted at, at low propensity voters uh, in this election explaining a bunch of these new laws hoping that maybe one of these letters would really you know, hit a nerve and, and mo- motivate people to vote, but we were not able to increase turnout a- among this group with, with any of these particular messages. Did um, any of
0: them use, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, did any of them use uh, this concept of social pressure? And for the listener who isn't well-versed in poli-sci, social pressure is a mailer or a contact, a letter, that tells the voter basically, you know, hey, your neighbors are out voting you, or your neighbors neighbors will know whether or not you voted. You don't want to be a civic, you know, free rider, things like that. So, um, did you use any not of that?
1: not in this experiment? Um, okay. We were really this was really can we piggyback on these California
0: institutions? Norms? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And 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 um, to be fair too, right? So like these low propensity voters. I'm assuming you chose special elections. Because to be um, just for people's benefit, these reforms have at least appeared to have increased overall participation in California, right? Yep, um, yep. yeah And we yep. see that nationally that in states in which you make it easy to vote, more people vote. <laughs> and, you know, in states when you make it harder to vote, less people vote. And there is actually even... Like a relationship once you control for different rates of income and education, which are also going to be major predictors of turnout, um, because you do see states that just have these really fantastic civic cultures and they've got good institutional design. So I just wanted people to know like, you're moving, you're trying to move these voters into. The elections that are most ignored and the reason it's really relevant to our convo now is that we're heading into this California recall against Newsom, right? And, you know, in a situation in which the turnout is very low, then Republicans have enough voting population if their turnout is really strong and Democrats don't show up that they could sneak it through, right? The yes vote that they have to get through vote. So, so yeah, so tell us, um, then, um, so, so you found that none of the messages worked and, and, and along with social pressure, like what, what were the other messages about?
1: Okay. So, so, um, so in this study, again, we didn't do social pressure or yeah, right. um, so other messages. Just
0: stated that, that, yeah.
1: That's okay. So, I mean, I've, I've run other field experiments. So, so I think that the, the two messages we think work, um, even among low propensity voters, are the social pressure type messages that you're talking about. Um, but I was also involved in a field experiment um, uh, that's called the secret ballot field experiment. Where uh, it turns out a a large number of people who don't normally vote um, are a little bit confused about whether or not their vote choice is kept secret during their voting experience. Um, And so we ran a, a, a field experiment in Connecticut where we sent letters explaining a bunch of the procedures. Um, that are in place to protect the integrity of the ballot and to keep uh, vote choices secret. And we actually found that this did mobilize um, low propensity voters. Okay, so so the theory is there are a set of voters out there, or not voters, uh, potential voters out there who are just nervous about the process of voting itself. And Connecticut doesn't have a lot of Vote My Mail. So you actually have to go to the polling place, you have to interact with people. And so you can imagine there are a set of people who don't really know, you know, maybe they're not used right. to interacting with a whole bunch of other people or or, or or so forth. And so this letter actually did increase turnout, even among, well, actually, especially among those who don't normally vote. Oh,
0: that's really interesting. And so like you basically sent them a thing that reinforced the concept that their their vote choice is kept secret no one will know what they're doing which is true as long as they don't show up to vote in a, in a state with a open primary <laughs> and they get asked do you want the democratic or the republican ballot they're like "Ah, oh, shit i'm running away <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> that'd be funny right yeah, um but yeah <laughs> Um, yeah so that's really interesting that's really cool okay so you've got a current book and um, it's in progress so I understand that you'll be giving us you know some of um, you know some of your preliminary stuff in it but tell us a little bit about the thesis of the book like what the purpose of it is and again it's it's title you can you I'll let you say it this time
1: yes (laughs) go ahead all right, so, so the book is titled Frustrated Majorities, uh, how issue int- intensity enables smaller groups of voters to get what they want. Um, so uh, it's, it's reacting to this um, presumption among many that democracy means majority rule. And any time that a policy desired by a majority does not get implemented, um, necess- it necessarily means there's some problem with democracy. Um, and, and that is true under some conceptions of democracy. But there are other conceptions of democracy where, um, because different voters care about different things, um, coalitions work together to develop sets of policies and positions that appeal to different constituencies. And so the basic argument of the book is that um, vote, voters who are in a minority who care sufficiently strongly about an issue can actually motivate politicians to support their position, even when the politician knows the majority feels otherwise. Um, And so, you know, one of the intuitive examples uh, that that everyone knows is is gun control, for example. So um, the challenge with gun control is that even though a majority, and in fact, a large majority supports things like background checks, when it comes time to vote, at an election, gun control may not be their number one issue, and so they may end up voting um, even for candidates who don't support gun control because uh, a bunch of other issues are more important to the voter. So this is kind of a problem with representative democracy, which is we get one vote for a candidate who has to represent us across a whole host of issues. Um, If, on the other hand, um, gun rights is your absolute number one issue and you are the you know, you are so you feel so strongly about that, that you will ignore anything else about the candidate. It doesn't even have to be that strong. But let's say it's a a really, really important thing to you. Um, It turns out candidates who are trying to maximize the the size of their coalition will sometimes stick with the gun rights folks and say, look, I'm going to sacrifice, sacrifice some appeal to the majority to be really certain that I have this very intense minority Um, And then I'm going to try to appeal to the majority on other issues on which they care more intensely. Um, So the book presents kind of a theory of of how this would work. Uh, It has a game theoretic model that shows that candidates actually would um, follow this strategy, assuming the minority cares enough more than the majority about the issue. Um, And then there's a set of empirical chapters that kind of tries to show that that the theory has some um, reasonable relationship to the way things actually work. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that's funny cuz like as soon as you said that I wanted to jump in and say, "Wait a minute. You're a quantitative empiricist and you're telling me you're, you're using game theory?" <laughs> so, I like that. That's great. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so uh, you know, for the non-political science nerds who haven't done PhDs or masters at least in poli sci, you know, generally speaking, you get in in the PhD world, you get somebody who's called formal theorist. And they do this stuff like rational choice and game theory and blah blah blah. And then you have these empiricists. You're like, no, nah, no, no. It doesn't matter if like you can map this thing out in a logic, you know, spatial model formula. What happens in the real world is different. So, tell me, what are you finding? Are you going to give us a preview of some of this, you know, stuff that you found? Or
1: sure, sure, happy to. So um, the. So one thing that I did was uh, I looked to see how valuable um, people's um, report of the most important problem facing the nation was uh, as a predictor of their vote choice. So one of the one of the important components of the theory is that indeed the problem or the issue people care most about really does uh, uh, play a key role in their vote choice. And so one can of the I, chapters. And can I
0: ask you real quick too? So, you know, my my audience is going to probably some of them are probably going to think this party is so powerful in that vote choice. So how do you disentangle first that and and get to these people for which even controlled for that, there's room for this issue salience? Yeah, of course. Just a bit about that.
1: So, I mean, party is super strong, but let's all remember that even even among partisans, you know, it's between 85 and and 95 percent are voting for um, for uh, their, the candidate of that party. So there are still partisans who vote the other way, and then of course there are independents who vote the other way. So it is true that that party is a better predictor than most important problem. Um, but among the um, non-party characteristics I look at, look at, and my uh, most important problem is the second most important. Yeah,
0: that's um, really fascinating because you know, of course, as somebody who studies this, and and, and there's always this ten. Five percent. I mean, I don't, it's, I call them noise, but they're not noise, right? They're, but there's like in any given modal contest that's competitive, you get about 10% defection on each rate. Exactly. It's going up, it's actually narrowing a little bit, especially on the Democratic side right now, because Trump and, and maybe that will change, or maybe it's coalitional resorting or whatever. But like generally you have this 10%, and no one ever really studies them, right? So we were just talking about this ironically, in a Twitter thread, somebody asked me about like, who are these 7% of Georgia Republicans in your survey who said Biden's not legitimately elected, right? And I was like, well, you know, you get this, like you got the heritage Democrats, you have people who are so stupid, they don't actually know who Joe Biden is (laughs) or what an election is, but they're doing the survey anyway. And then you have, you know, like this unexplained portion, right? Your research is, I mean, to me, a, a strong contribution here is you're getting some of that explained.
1: Right. Um, and, and, you know, lots of people talk about um, what's called cross-pressure. So on it may be that, you know, most of your social identity and most of your issues align very well with one of the two parties. But most people are more complicated than just a simple facsimile of what the party coalition is. And so they have some cross-pressure, which means there's some issue or some social grouping that is not aligned with the party that they usually affiliate with. Um, and so when that issue or, or identity is activated, they very well might um, vote for the other side or, or vote for a third party candidate. Um, and one thing that I'm arguing in the book is it's particularly important if that is an issue that they care very much about. Now, obviously, if the issue you care most about um, is not well aligned with the party you're affiliated with, you're most likely going to transition to the other party. But that's, that could be a slow process, as we know. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do think we're picking up a little bit of of those cross-pressure types of, of voters. Um, you know, and I also, in other research, I've talked about, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger in, in 2006 was able to pick up a lot of otherwise Democratic voters. And I think Trump in 2016 was able to pick up a lot of historically democratic voters. Um, and I interpret that as when you get a candidate from a party who talks about some issues that are off-dimensional but appeal to some some voters in the other coalition, they can peel away some of those voters. Um,
0: Especially if it taps maybe in to one of these into these long term, like you know realignment processes because the, the stuff that we're seeing today isn't like it started in 2006 right like it, I mean, this shit goes all the way back to like this the Dixiecrats and the you know the collapse of the south and the realignment there and then oh we're gonna have two-party competition oh no we're not we're gonna have you know the conservative white you know majority of the south just basically switch their ideology stays the same but they switch parties right um so like I just think it's really fascinating that you that this issue salience thing could matter, right? And then if you were to like bring the research down a level or maybe even a few, um, you might be able to find too that like that could be triggered, right? So like maybe you know this uh, issue of guns isn't very it's important to me, but it's not my number one issue, and I'm and I'm I'm kind of like in the early process of thinking of defecting. Right. To, to the new party or, you know, cr- voting for the candidate for the, like Trump. Right. And then this it, it just so, so happens that this issue becomes salient in the news. Right. Because we know how influential like the public agenda is and, and, and elite signals and what have you. So are you looking at anything like to, to, to into that at all in the book or?
1: I I have set that aside though I um, talk a lot about it in the conclusion like this is something that
0: yeah. Okay. Yeah, this is
1: something that needs more investigation I kind of take intensity as a given characteristic of, of voters through through most of the book um, but of course um, you know that 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 can't always be true and, and there must be um, Various features of the external environment that that can change the relative intensity voters feel for different issues. Um, But at the moment, I don't have any empirical chapters on that. Right.
0: Yeah, Yeah. that's really I mean, we all do that as political scientists. We write things that are formal anyway for for the academy. And we there's this there's a tradition where you. Talk about what your research didn't get to or the questions that it raised and didn't answer because you would end up with a thousand page book. <laughs> I don't want to read. Um, so like so here's one thing that I would say about that. It would be interesting because the issue salience, like for each presidential anyway, there's kind of like a new thing, right? Like it's it, it, you could easily look at the relationship between if you did multiple cycles this thing was super important in 2004 and 2008 it was backlash to war and then the economy right and you know 2020 it's this pandemic who'd, who'd have thought you know you always have like uh, 2004 you had gay marriage come on the scene so like there might be a way to get down in there especially in, like a, a case study election too like if you look at yeah. 2004 um, yeah. and look at that gay marriage like initiative and uh, just so fascinating because of course like for me as the, like the you know democratic evil mad scientist strategist person that I, I'm becoming anyway um, you know that, that that's when the Republican party, party you know via Karl Rove they pivot to this idea of no more centrist like jibble jabble right like they start to put out red meat and like their entire electoral strategy at the campaign level, like the you know, direct mailers, the commercials, and this initiative of Carl Rove's to put all these gay marriage bans on the state ballots, that's really where like the modern GOP campaign machine starts to find its feet, right? So like, it would be interesting to see, like, does it you know can you work that into this issue saliency um you know topic since you also are very good at slicing and dicing the electorate in other ways (laughs) yeah that that, that's a
1: that's a i hadn't thought about that but you're right that um one way to get at that is the overtime differences in in the issues that are at the forefront of the campaign um and you know uh, uh, of course uh, as a voter um, you don't want to be voting based on some issue that nobody's talking about like you, right. you you want to be making a choice based on the two candidates before you and the issues that they're talking about. So sometimes um, the the rele- relevant issue of intensity might might not necessarily be your number one issue um, if that's not what's you know on the ballot basically.
0: Yeah, that's really true and then like you know not to put pressure on you but the podcast that came out before this one was Gary Jacobs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, you know, him and I, you know, he we're talking about a couple of his new research pieces and, and what he's really doing, you know, is just like you. I mean, both these articles draft at the same time. And I'm like, oh, look, validation. And uh, Gary um, Jacobson's stuff was looking at, Like documenting over time because he's kind of got a monopoly anyway on this like approach and this data set that, you know, I would never intrude into. And and he's one of the things he shows is how much party loyalty is like trajectoried up since even the early 2000s. So again, looking backwards a little bit with the issue salience, you'd also have a little bit more wiggle room. With the power of party to work with, and a little bit more like a you know a heterogeneity anyway of of ideological right. sorting to work with, because we are really now at the like peak <laughs> pretty much of the sorting process, and, and I mean we can get a little bit more sorty, but it's not. I don't think we don't have that much more room to grow. So um, you know, finding anything in contemporary data that can overcome the power of party. Is impressive and it, and it really is a testament to how shrewd that research design must be I'm really excited to read that book and uh, might have to have you come back for a second round so That'd we can be fun. talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, today was great. I hope um, everybody listening to this enjoyed it. Uh, I know, um, you know, you get smarter every time that uh, you have one of my guests educate us. It's like getting into some of the best universities with the best political science professors in the country and learning a little bit about what political science looks like when it's not, you know, on the Internet. <laughs> it's a lot more complex, but I think also a lot more rich and um gets into the how and the why of things in a way that we just can't get off of election Twitter. So thank you so much, Seth.
1: You're quite welcome. It was fun to be here.
0: Yeah. Thank you.